This is a Federal News Network podcast. Rumor mongering on the internet, it's a constant threat. Last year, rumors threatened to muck up the 2020 decennial census count. My next guest built partnerships between the Census Bureau and some of the largest internet companies to successfully tamp down rumors and help maintain public trust in the Bureau and in the count. He's a division chief at the Bureau's IT Service Management Office and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program, Zach Schwartz. Mr. Schwartz, good to have you on. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Give us the extent that you were able to see of the types of disinformation going on and what kinds of platforms did you see it on? It was actually extremely important for us, even before we saw any mis- or disinformation online, to go out there and be proactive about making sure that the content we had as the Census Bureau and our partners had was accurate and authoritative. So that was really the first step for us in fighting the mis- and disinformation that could have potentially happened during the census. Once the census went live, our partners in you know social media companies and many other companies for that matter actually knew what was authoritative and accurate. So when we went out and saw information out there that was inaccurate, we were able to quickly react. Our platforms knew what to do. They knew how to take down content. They had census suppression policies in place. It was just a whole shebang of making sure that information that was out there about census was accurate and therefore encouraging people to respond online, over the phone, or by mail. And I'm curious as to what some of the more difficult rumors to take on might have been. For example, some of them were obvious if someone says, well, they're not there to get the count of your house. They're there to shoot you or rob you. This type of thing is kind of easy to spot as a sad sort of lie. But were some of the disinformation campaigns more subtle than that? And if so, you know, maybe give us a couple of examples. Yeah, there's one that really stands out to us, especially during the coronavirus pandemic that was happening. And it was around the stimulus payments that were going out last year. And unfortunately, there was a rumor that was going around that you had to complete your census in order to get your stimulus payment. And you might think offhand, oh, you know, maybe that encouraged people to respond to the census. But really what it did and what communities saw or what they could have seen with that type of a rumor is that the Census Bureau was actually sharing information, which is illegal, to other federal agencies about who responded or even more information. And that's something that really made us nervous because we didn't want people to think or have any inkling of concern that the Census Bureau would share information submitted during the 2020 census. That was one that we really were concerned about. Another rumor that popped up was information about whether or not non-citizens could complete the census. And we made it very clear as part of our information that all residents should be responding during the 2020 census. And, you know, while there was some information out there that the census is only about the count of the citizens of the United States, that was not accurate. And we were able to quickly clamp down on that and make sure authoritative content was out there that said all residents of the U.S. should be responding to the 2020 census. So many of these rumors, therefore, kind of built upon political debates that were going on and general fears that were going on, such as, as you mentioned, that census would share data with ICE. That was another one that went around. Correct. Yeah, we were definitely on top of any of the concerns. I mean, census was in the news with the citizenship case in the Supreme Court and other places. And we really wanted to make sure that the census stayed accurate about who needed to be counted and really what the data was used for. And that was extremely important to us. We wanted people to know that the data collected during the census was all about getting representation for their communities and making sure their communities had billions and billions of dollars allocated to them each year accurately based on the counts that we collected. 
And in its outreach programs to try to ensure as many people as possible do go ahead and give their census information, census targets many, many different ethnic and sub-communities to make sure that the word does get out deeply into different languages and so forth. Did the same type of effort extend in what you were doing? That is to say, are there certain platforms, certain forums that different ethnic groups, for example, might use that you would have to identify to make sure you were there to counteract what might be wrongly on there? A hundred percent. We needed to make sure that we were tracking information in multiple languages and at a hyper-local level. There are some platforms that are more commonly used, like WeChat, WhatsApp, certain WhatsApp groups, uh, and others that are more in language for certain communities. And we wanted to make sure that our partners who, because the Bureau doesn't monitor these platforms or individual groups, obviously, in these platforms, but we wanted to make sure our partners that are in these platforms that do share information, we're making sure that the content in these groups or on these specific platforms that are in a different language than English were accurate and authoritative. And that's what we focused on, making sure our partners there had that content and that they were clamping down on any rumors that may have popped up in those kind of small subset groups. We're speaking with Zach Schwartz. He's a division chief of the IT Service Management Office at the Census Bureau. He's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And what kind of apparatus did you set up from an IT standpoint to get all this information in and make sure that the partners and Googles and the WhatsApps, et cetera, knew what they had to do? Yeah, we're thrilled. Our overall program was called the Trust and Safety Team, which is exactly mirrored on what success has happened with those large companies in clamping down on mis- and disinformation on their platforms. For us, though, we used a robust tool for social listening so that we could actually weed through a lot of the noise. I mean, there was millions and millions of comments and conversation about the census over the last year, and we really needed to make sure we were targeting where rumors or concerns were occurring and that we could actually target them without you know, getting we, uh, nettled down in the weeds. So that for us was really important, having a robust social listening tool, but then really just being able to have constant communication with our social media platform contacts. We met with them weekly. We met with them over the weekends. When anything popped up, we knew who to contact, and they were there to help us in ensuring that a rumor didn't spread much beyond whatever we had captured at that moment in time. And that for us was the real success, that constant communication. And, of course, now the 2020 count is completed, and we're going to get the numbers pretty soon in a big way. So the pressure is off, at least for a few years. But this apparatus that you set up and these systems that you set up, will they be useful now in these years between the decennial counts? A hundred percent. We're really excited to use the apparatus and the tools that we have to support other surveys that the Census Bureau does, including the American Community Survey, our economic census, but even more excited about supporting our federal partners across the government, including the CDC, the Veterans Affairs Administration, other places that have really important programs that are often plagued by mis- or disinformation online. And we've got a lot of lessons learned and a lot of best practices that we look forward to sharing across the government and across the programs. And I'll ask you a question I ask a lot of the Sammy's finalists that we interview every year. How did you get into this whole idea of public service and the Census Bureau in particular? I had an opportunity to join the census early on in the decade before the 2020 census, and I honestly, I fell in love with the technology. They were at the forefront of thinking about how the government could present technology that met the individual where they were, that it was accessible and easy to use, and that to me was extremely important. 
you came directly from college to Census? What's your pathway? Yeah, I actually came from the private sector here to Census, and I was a uh, consultant for Census early on. And I fell in love with the mission, and an opportunity arose to switch over to the federal side, and I took it and ran. Well, you know, there's no big partnership track at the Census Bureau like there is in consulting. Does that make you still want to stay in government? A hundred percent. I just absolutely love the pressure and the ability to do things uh, in government. You know, that's something I enjoy, and I really, really don't think there's anything else that I could do at this point. And what is the pace like at Census now that the decennial count is over and I guess maybe for a week or two, everyone could breathe a sigh of relief. But the effort goes on all the time, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And we are in full steam ahead. I mean, we've got the apportionment numbers, as you referenced, that are getting ready to uh, come out. So we're really excited about that for the details for each state on their populations, you know, at the county level and track level and such. But, you know, census is picking up as we get geared up for the economic census here. The American Community Survey is always happening. And let me tell you, you may think that that's a small survey. That is a massive survey with massive implications across the U.S. So we're really excited about everything that's happening here. But again, Again, we've got a lot of lessons learned and a lot of best practices that we can share with other federal partners, and that's what we're also actively doing for everything we learned in the 2020 census, not just about the Trust and Safety Program. Zach Schwartz is Division Chief of the IT Service Management Office at the Census Bureau and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to uh, uh, to, to lead in a way 
uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better 
future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees and, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick. Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person, 
or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.